As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. If you're loving this podcast, we invite you to go deeper and partner with us in our work by joining the Gravity Commons, our online community of practice for connecting and learning together. As a member of the Gravity Commons, you get access to live podcast recordings with upcoming guests, as well as other opportunities to connect and learn together with us in real time. Including learning labs, member meetups, discussion boards, online courses, and our practitioner podcast. Go to gravityleadership.com slash commons to find out more. See you in the commons. You're listening to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Charmin. No, brought to you by Gravity Leadership. I'm joined by us. Ben Sternke. It's brought to you by us. We're here. Yeah, we're bringing I it mean, right here to you and Christy Penley. the three Penley. of us. It's Christy, happening right now. It's welcome. Ben, welcome. Mm-hmm. Have... Have we got a show for you today? Have we got a show for you? Yes, we do. Get yes, ready. we do. We chatted. Seatbelt up. Yep, seatbelt up. Uh, we chatted with Jessica Johnson and Rick Pidcock mm-hmm. um, about this podcast phenomenon uh, called the Mars Hill Podcast. The Rise and yeah. Fall of Mars Hill, that's what it's called. Yep. Uh, hosted by Christianity Today, and I know... I've listened to most of it. A lot of our listeners yeah. have listened to most of it. It's mm-hmm. really well produced, really well done from a, I think, you know, the person Production who hosts standpoint. it and all the guests, like they're like editing it and there's no ums, there's no dad jokes ruining <laughs> it at the end. Like there's just, it's, re- is, I mean, it's just a super, it's a souped up uh-huh. f- Ferrari, uh, you know? It is. Yeah. Um, it's real good. And some people have really contrasting uh, I think diametrically opposed takes on it, mm-hmm. and so we got mm-hmm. Rick and Jessica to share a little bit about what they're noticing about this podcast. And we wanted to—I think we wanted to amplify what's missing, or what questions do we have, or mm-hmm. what work is this podcast doing from people I think who are maybe a little closer to Mars Hill than we are. So it yeah. was really good. This was a Gravity Commons live conversation, so we had yep. a good OT conversation afterwards. You should check out mm-hmm. the Commons if you want to get on those OT conversations. But yeah, yeah. it was super, and we're going to get great. right into it here. Yeah, well, we got a couple events to tell you about. Oh, that's if you right. You want to join us? Yeah, remember that? Yeah. Where are you uh, going, Ben? Tell us. I am going on March 19th, uh, listeners. I'm going to be in uh, Fredericktown, Missouri, which is a pretty small town, about two hours south of St. Louis. But if you're in the area, I am going to be doing a Enneagram Transformation 
workshop with a church uh, called Meadow Heights that we work with down there. Um, so yeah, this will be the first time I've done an Enneagram workshop since January. Well, we did one online, but the first time I'll do a live one since January 2020, right before the pandemic. Oh my so goodness. I'm have to brush up. But anyway, yeah. it, we'll put a link in the show notes, but it's, uh, I'm excited to be brushing off uh, this material and talking about the Enneagram and spiritual growth and transformation and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and where are you guys I, going? You guys are going somewhere. I that know, same March, weekend. We're, we're, splitting same, we're up. dividing. We're uh-huh. conquering and dividing, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> March and joining. Eight, joining, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, March 18 and 19, we're going to New York City. Yeah, we are. To do a conference, to be a part of a conference called Half the Church. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited. And so if you're in the New York City area, you mm-hmm. should come to Half the Church conference. And, yeah. Um, yeah, Allison, Dan, um, why can't I think of her name? Beth Allison Bar. Bar. Beth yeah, Allison Bar is going to be there. And yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah. It's a conference specifically about uh, the important central role women have in the leading of the church. And mm-hmm. so Christy and I are going to be there. And at first we thought we were going to go and just hang out with friends. And now we're like speaking and leading a workshop. So Christy, we got <laughs> some work to do. We yeah, do, but it'll yeah. be it'll be way so to, good. Go, I'm excited. I'm yeah. excited for you guys. I'm really excited. Thanks. I wish I could go. Uh, I know. I love New York, and I love Dan and Amanda, and uh, I love I love uh, the 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 topic of the conference. So, yeah. um, but anyway, alas, we had to we had to split up this one. Uh, mm-hmm. One one quick anecdote about Jessica before we get into oh. this interview. Jessica All is right. an anthropologist, and uh, I have. Uh, really gotten into an anthropologist lately named David Graeber, who tragically died a few years ago. But um, he is—he's uh, this guy that I really enjoy reading. And I, uh, Jessica and I, after this podcast, we nerded out on email back and forth about David Graeber. Um, so anyway, so I, I got—I uh, got a little anthropology nerd uh, fix, just uh, being able to talk with Jessica about David Graeber. So, hmm. fun fact. That's fun. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's get into it. Right, yeah. Jessica and Rick, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Jessica Johnson is our guest, one of our guests today. She's a visiting scholar at college at the College of William and Mary, and she's the author of the book entitled Biblical Porn, Gender, Sexuality, and Evangelical Empire. Uh, Rick is a, uh, a writer with the Baptist News uh, online uh, platform, and he's also a stay-at-home dad with five kids and a cat. Right, Rick. Uh, yes. He writes. <laughs> he's a freelance writer. He writes uh, music as well under the artist name Provoke Wonder. Um, thank you both for joining us. It's good to be. It's good to be with you. Yeah, definitely. I got the kids out of the house, but I wasn't able to get the cat out of the house. So hopefully, don't we don't have any meowing in the background? Oh, that right. might be that might be happening on my end too. So <laughs> all right. he's around. A lot of times my dog uh, interrupts our podcast episodes um, because you know people come to the door and she needs to alert me. But I I don't I don't anticipate that cat noises are nearly as loud as dog noises, though. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. It's all right. Uh, we, this will be a sensitive uh, conversation. We're talking about um, uh, the the podcast by Christianity Today, hosted by Mike Cosper, called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill." It's been wildly successful. Uh, at one point, it was number three uh, on iTunes in terms of uh, listened to podcasts, uh, and it's sparked a lot of conversation and I would say controversy. And so, what uh, we thought we would do here in the Gravity Community today is pull together um, just. Jessica's written a book on Mars Hill. We'll talk about this in a second, as well as an article that's been more critical of the podcast. Rick, you've uh, written about your experience in Acts 29, an organization that Mark Driscoll helped start as a church planner coming out of sort of a Mars Hill adjacent world. And as well, you also wrote an article about one of the episodes that had some of your reflections on it. Let me um, just say, this is going to be some sensitive things. We're going to talk about uh, all the kinds of stuff that 
the podcast gets into all the kinds of stuff that happened to Mars Hill. So um, maybe sexual abuse, maybe domestic abuse, uh, misogyny, et cetera, just uh, spiritual trauma, fair warning. Uh, this is going to be a sensitive um, topic. Uh, let's start with you, Jessica. You are um, you wrote a book about Mars Hill and the culture there. As a researcher, I believe you were in the Seattle area at the time, and you decided to spend three years embedded in Mark's church, researching and writing a book. How, what, why, how, why did you, and, and, and I should maybe say, you don't identify as a Christian. And so you're doing this as a researcher, a sociologist. Um, how did you decide to do that? And tell us a little bit about what that experience was like for you. Right. So um, I was working on my dissertation field work. Um, I'm actually an anthropologist. So I did uh, ethnographic research at Marshall is what we call it, where, yes, you're embedded in the, the, the field, so to speak. So my field work was in Mars Hill Church. My research at the time, though, was honestly on both sides of the gay marriage issue, looking at legalization mm. and um, how different organizations were mobilizing for or against basically and really trying to sort of trouble that binary formation for or against and see like what were groups kind of that were on the outliers of these this issue and and sort of what were they doing and mars hill i considered one of those outliers in the sense that they were definitely not for the legalization of gay marriage by any stretch um, but at the same time, they weren't protesting against it. So I knew it was a very socially and theologically conservative church, but it was also, also what Mark Driscoll liked to call um, culturally liberal, right? Mm -hmm. So they wanted to really embrace the, the Seattle scene, right? And really culturally adapt to um, and be a part of the, the city landscape in terms of music, in terms of, you know, the film culture, in terms of literature. They had a nice like bookstore in the in the um, lobby of the, the place. And they had um, all the artwork of, you know, congregants around and, it, and they, you know, the free coffee, right? I know this is now a bit, not a big deal and a lot of places have, but, you know, it was sort of novel at that time. And they also had an amazing website um, they were one of the first, I would argue, one of the first churches that really tapped into that IT labor market in Seattle and yeah. were really savvy about that. So I was really, um, you know, sort of taken by the fact that they were attracting this very young demographic, um, very gender, um, you know, diverse um, in terms of men and women. Um, and so, you know, and Mark was always talking about like he wanted to attract young men and he wanted to marry young couples within the church so that they would then propagate and have young families in the church and really saw this as a multi-generational legacy. Um, so I was really attracted to that aspect of them. Like how were they navigating and negotiating this kind of like culturally liberal, theologically conservative, conservative um, you know, vibe and scene, so to speak. Um, and I really was... I mean, I've told this story before, but the first service that I went to, Mark tells a story about, you know, Ricky, Bobby, Talladega Nights, that joke about smoking hot wife. Again, another thing that has now become a very common trope, right, for young yeah. hip pastors still to this day um, to use. But he was the first pastor that I heard ever say something like that. Right. And then it became kind of a thing. Um, I'm not sure that he was the first, but he was the first I heard. And so mm -hmm. this whole trapping of like very sexualized culture, you know, I opened up my book talking about that very story, you know, and how the sexualization of the culture was very apparent and evident from the get go. I mean, literally the first service I went to, that was before the sermon even started. So we're not even talking about when he would specifically preach on Song of Solomon or, you know, the real marriage series or any of the stuff that was very like, okay, now we're going to talk about sex within Christian heterosexual marriage and how hot it is. It wasn't even that yet. Right. It was just mm -hmm. like all the time. In addition mm -hmm. to the fact that I would go in there as a researcher, I would go in and by myself. I don't have a wedding ring on. Right. And so there's this kind of like meat market vibe in a church, okay, <laughs> where you really are identified and it was very apparent men and women both would look for a wedding ring on my finger. And um, I'd never felt that like, um, you know, sort of uh, self-conscious, right, about whether or not I was single or married. And this would happen in, you know, women's groups that I would go to, like small groups and such. So I became a very aware um, of just how ingrained and how um, important and vital 
that teaching about gender and sexuality, um, you know, and women being sexually free and liberated as long as it's within, again, Christian heterosexual marriage um, and being visually generous. So that was another thing that Mark would highlight over and over and over again, right? Um, even like making references off the cuff about like the fawns in songs being like breasts and the only men who don't like breasts are men who are dead or gay, you know, or sometimes he would change it up and say blind or gay, you know? So it was just like, just all these little jokes that he would make and all like just all the time, you know, it was impossible to ignore the fact that this was a very sexualized environment. Um, and so you felt like, and that's one of the things that I would say, I mean, just kind of veering into the podcast and my, my critique a little bit here. Um, one of the things I would say that the podcast certainly does not capture is, is that sense of threat that, you know, just as a woman, you know, going into that environment, it wasn't like I ever felt like someone was going to physically assault me or anything. I don't want to overstate this. But there was definitely, again, that sexualized environment that you would not really prepare yourself for if you go into a church environment like that. And it was something that always marked you and made you feel self-conscious and possibly shamed, right? Mm. Depending on your own kind of purview about who you were. Now, as a researcher, as an ethnographer, I was always a little bit, you know, detached. So I, I did keep like that, that balance kind of step back. And I really was open, you know, I just wanted to learn about the place. I didn't go in with any pre preconceived judgments. The, the press in Seattle and even friends of mine that I would talk to that heard a little something about Mars Hill. And we're talking, you know, like early 2000s around that time. Um, I started attending like 2005, 2006. Um, you know, they would say things like, oh, I've heard that place is kind of cool. You know, like, they're part of the all ages music scene. You know, they had the paradox like in the late 90s, early 2000s. That was one of the only places for under age, under 21 age year old like music scene. So and they would get in secular acts and stuff like that. So, you know, they kind of had this very um, positive sort of press and, and sort of like feeling about them within the culture of the, the, the city. And they, they, you know, they cultivated that. Um, but again, once you stepped in, <laughs> um, you know, it became pretty clear to me that something else was going on. There was this very, very uneasy undercurrent. And that's part of, well, how I feel as an ethnographer anyway. I'm curious about the things that make me a little uncomfortable, right? Yeah. So I'm in there being, you know, kind of detached. I wouldn't claim objectivity because that's basically an impossible kind of, you know, but, but I definitely wasn't judgy. I was just there to learn. So I took Bible classes. I took gospel classes for membership. You know, I did everything that I could in public spaces to just really embrace, okay, how is this place teaching about Calvinism? How is this place teaching about gender, sex, and marriage, right? How is this place like culturally oriented towards, you know, again, the IT film, they use a lot of film clips and they use a lot, of, they had film and theology nights, I would go to those. So I was really immersed and, and, and I really kind of, that kind of took over my dissertation work, to be honest with you. I was so fascinated by the place, right? Um, it was really kind of yeah. a, a phenomenon. So, hmm. well, I I have some questions that maybe we can return to about. You mentioned having some distance, but I'm curious as a single woman who's being subjected to sort of the misogyny, the hypersexualization, um, how even even the questions you went into Marcel with aren't the questions that you found most interesting and came out with to write about. I am curious. Maybe uh, we'll give you some time to think about this, Jessica. Like, what was the was there moral injury? Was there personal injury that you experienced even researching that? And, and maybe in the moment, maybe, maybe this uh, 15 years interim, you've been able to reflect on that. I'd love to return to that if you want to share about that in a bit. Sure. Um, let me introduce Rick to Rick. Uh, maybe in contrast to Jessica, you didn't uh, orbit in the wider orbits of the Mars Hill universe as a dispa uh, like a dispassionate uh, observer or researcher, but you actually were a worship leader and you worked at an Acts 29 church. I wonder if you can just a bit uh, maybe share some of your story about how Mars Hill in that time that Jessica just narrated kind of intersected your life. Yeah, definitely. So like, in, and to give it a little context, I grew up in a very conservative fundamentalism that wasn't, they, they didn't have that junior high level of humor when it comes to sexuality, but there was this like a constant fear of it. And everything was seen through the eyes of the dangers of sex. And so then I became one of those young men that wanted to participate in church planting. 
And so, you know, my, I got married very young again, as, as typical in that culture. And my wife and I moved across the country and uh, to Denver, and we were going to be part of a church plant. And, and so we were going to spend the first year out there uh, uh, just looking at different churches around the area and learning from them. And this was not going to be an X-29 church. It was going to be an independent church that was funded from some different um, supporting churches that we had. But uh, during that first year, I ended up, uh, after about six months of constantly critiquing all these other churches with, you know, we were visiting each week, it was just spiritually draining me. And so I was like, I need to get plugged in somewhere where I can just kind of grow and, and serve until we're ready to start our church. So I spent six months leading worship in an Acts 29 church with that was led by a, a couple of guys who ended up being one of the main leaders at Mark Driscoll's church and in Acts 29 uh, shortly thereafter. But it was interesting because I was also in the cleaning industry and I spent the last 20 years cleaning floors and restrooms. And so part of, and, and I did that in order to give myself flexibility to serve the church. Uh, and so, and so I put my whole career on hold for this. And so during that first year, because I couldn't just start my business from scratch, I was actually working at this church property that had like three or four different churches all meeting there. And two of them were Acts 29 churches wanting to merge and all of them were fighting. And I was the guy, you know, trying to get chairs moved and restrooms cleaned and they all liked me. So <laughs> they were all complaining to me about each other. And so I got kind of caught up in a lot of this church drama stuff and um, saw, you know, a lot of the behind the scenes, uh, you know, as far as that goes. And then, you know, for the next seven years, uh, while we were not, when I actually start, we actually got our church started. Uh, we were not an X29 church, but we were friends with X29 guys in the areas. And, um, and, and we ended up going through a very similar church abuse situation where, you know, I recognize our story in this, in this podcast a lot. So. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good place, Rick. Thanks for sharing that, um, to pivot into this podcast. Um, I, I wonder as, uh, Jessica, as someone who spent so much time researching what this podcast is about, did you look forward to this podcast? Were you skeptical about it? And what do you think you are able to hear in the podcast that may be unique as a listener? So I was not looking forward to the podcast. <laughs> I was interviewed for it. So I do appear in episodes four and five. Um, yeah. What did you think about that? Are you happy? Are you glad you did that? Uh, you know, I am. I think it was a perspective that was necessary. I'm glad that I participated for that reason alone. Um, you know, as I, I note in the in the review, I think I'm one of the only non-Christian at least self-identified openly, you know, that, like that's actually included in the, the interview material bit that he, I usually do do that because that just seems to me to be an honest move. Um, it seems ethical, right? Um, according to what my ideas of ethics are. So, um, so I'm glad that my perspective is in there. And I was actually uh, at first a little bit worried about how that material might be used because I didn't know my Cosper and it's one of the, honestly, like, I don't have any trepidation about talking to you all, frankly, but it was a time where it seemed like the stakes were a little bit higher because I didn't really understand the project and I didn't mm. really understand what Christianity Today's take might be. And so I was a little bit nervous about it going in, to be honest with you, not because of my own kind of worries about how I might come across so much as just what was going to be asked. I, I, you know, I usually ask for questions up front and I didn't really have an idea exactly about what was going to be used and what wouldn't and what the scope of the project was. So, um, so anyway, I was a little bit nervous about that. Uh, and honestly, talking about my research up until very recently, um, it's only been in the last, I would say, few months um, because I've had more opportunities based on my review, honestly, of the podcast and just, you know, I, but when I first started talking about my book, um, you know, among academics or whatever, when people would ask me for podcast interviews, I did not enjoy them at all. It was hmm. not fun. Um, it was very difficult. It was extraordinarily draining, quite exhausting. Um, I felt depressed all the time. I mean, for me, <laughs> it was like I had a kind of, um, PTSD, sort of aftershock effect, you know, so while you're immersed in this and trying to do it as a researcher too, really, again, trying to be it like your, your language of dispassionate and, and detached is right on, you know, like I really didn't want to like 
you know, I immersed myself, but I didn't want to impose myself. Right. Mm. And so that's a very big distinction an important one. And I, I really, you know, really didn't allow myself to understand just how scary it was really. Um, and how much it was exhausting me and taking so much out of me um, until after the book was published, really. And that's when I started talking about it among people and, and for different podcasts and whatnot, that I really started realizing like, wow, I'm not okay. Like this, hmm. this act and this, and, and some of it, the writing too, but even friends reading it, you know, it was friends reading it too, that were just like, oh my gosh, I was afraid for you the entire time I read your oh, book, <laughs> you know? So, so I just, you know, it's, and, and sometimes reviewers of even articles before the book came out, you know, I published in different journals and they'd be like, this is scary. Like, this is damaging. This is violence, you know? And I would, I would know that on a certain level, but I couldn't allow myself to really feel it wholly. Right. Yeah. Because otherwise yeah. I wouldn't go back, you right. know? Right. And by then too, I, you know, towards the later stages of my research. So I was immersed in it in the first few years, but I didn't have, um, we call it in my field IRB approval, which is basically institutional approval, approval to interview people. And I didn't have the opportunity for, to formally interview anybody because I needed Driscoll's permission, <laughs> which he was not going to give me. And then part of the process of the opening of the book is me trying to get that permission from him. So yeah. I did talk to him at one stage. I talked to some pastors in order to. So so part of the book's narrative is actually undergirded by that process, at least in the opening opening stages of the book. And then by the end, when the church was collapsing, basically around 2013, it started the downhill slide. And when things started coming more public, um, I started re reaching out to people. And then I got the approval because Driscoll was no longer the, the head of the church. So by then, I'd already had some inroads with folks. I'd gone to the protest outside the Bellevue Church in the summer of 2014. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started meeting people. And by then, I was really, I felt a part of them, right? Like I felt I really wanted that community. So for example, when um, the second to last, the penultimate episode of the podcast, um, Cosper mentions this anonymous video, right? Um, where, where Driscoll's, it's actually where my book formally opens, where Driscoll's in the Bellevue Sanctuary, given this apology that's really kind of not a full apology, right? Like, oh, we don't really know who to apologize to. I don't know who to repent to, but I'm sorry. Sorry, but not sorry, right? Mm -hmm. And I was deeply disturbed by that because I had my browser open to all of these, you know, and Cosper just, I mean, this is one of the things, like my book really goes into the detail and the, the kind of emotional and affective kind of feelings that I had in relationship to the space, the people, even my relationship with Mark, even though it was that, again, that distant thing. I mean, I knew the guy's voice. I'd had to listen to all of these sermons over and over and over again to transcribe them, right? Mm -hmm. So, so not only was I going there and constantly listening to these audios, but then I started meeting people and, and I really got caught up in their stories as they're also processing their trauma. Right. Yeah. So I was right there with them in that, you know, um, so it wasn't until all of that was over, you know, so we're talking like 2015, by then I have basically my book contract with Duke. Um, and I start writing the book in a really rigorous sense. By then I'd had some pieces, but really kind of putting it together. And I just got it out as quickly as possible because I honestly just wanted it out of my life at that point. You know? <laughs> I wanted it done. Um, but it's still been, you know, it's it's been a part of me and it will never not be a part of me, you know. So it's actually been really painful to listen to the podcast for me, frankly. Um, mm -hmm. even though I still am okay with the way that my interview material was used, I I, um, I really have had a hard time with the podcast. Um, and some of that comes out in the review, even though, again, I try to do it much more as a, like, you know, this is just a, a review of this. And I have, I do have an inside perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, especially these, I didn't write about like the last couple episodes. I, I think the thing, my review came out around episode nine. And I, by that time, I thought the podcast was really going off the rails. Like he had in some things about Bobby Knight and, you know, the Exorcist movie and things that just seemed really like off base to me. And that it was like filler content. Right. And I was like, gosh, there's so much meat here. What are you doing? You know, um, but then the last two episodes I listened to over the weekend were really troubling because they were so, to my mind, uneven. And they just like two and a half hours and two and a half hours blocks of really having to listen to some tough stuff 
mm-hmm. that really could have been slowed down, could have been processed a lot better, I think, and and much more evenly, and didn't, you know, and it could have been, you know, substituted for the Bobby Knight episode for sure. I mean, you know, so I don't understand the process and the mechanics of how all of that came to be. I just. I would have never put this out, frankly, without having all the material up front and knowing the narrative and like kind of, you know, and doing that kind of work. Yeah, I don't really get it, honestly, Mm. so. Hmm. Hi, I'm Deb from Ormond Beach, Florida. One of the best gifts that I received for my journey through a Gravity Leadership cohort was a new perspective on flourishing in life and in ministry. I didn't realize how much of my discipleship was formed by call-out culture. My whole orientation was toward calling out what was wrong or sinful in the world, in my own life, and in the church. But gravity helped me see that Christ was always calling people in toward life and flourishing. And my cohort came to feel kind of like a community garden. We got to practice calling each other in to a deeper awareness of God's life, of His goodness and His love, and how it was bearing fruit in our lives. So if you're looking for a safe space to grow in your life with God and to practice your gardening skills in the life of others, I hope you'll check out the Gravity Leadership Academy. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. This kind of gets to the crux of um, what's interesting to me about um, this podcast and about um, critiques of this podcast, because, you know, in one sense, you know, Jessica, both you and, and Rick have, have expressed like this negative experience, you know, with Mars Hill. And by and large, the podcast, uh, you know, I think probably everybody listening to this podcast um, is aware that what happened at Mars Hill is bad, you know? So it's like everybody agrees on that. Um, and I think there's, there's some, I've, I've heard some pushback. If I, if I have a critique about the podcast, I've sometimes heard pushback from people who find, who found some help from the podcast to be like, well, you know, you can't expect the podcast to do something that it never set out to do or, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm wondering if um, maybe, maybe starting with you, Rick, and then, Jessica, I'd love to hear a little bit more details about like where, why do you feel like it's important to critique the podcast? Why is it important? And what, you know, maybe what's some of the substance of that critique, um, you know, and how is it maybe different in your mind than just sort of, you know, well, I wish that he would have done this instead of that. Like what, what's the, yeah. you know, does that make sense, Rick? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause like my, like my article focused more on the Josh Harris episode and how a lot of the episodes leading up to that, I identified with a lot of the pain in them, but I felt like the Josh Harris episode reframed what your pain does to you as a human being in a way that was very harmful. And so like Jessica, this last weekend, I, I went and finished the, the podcast and I just felt a lot of, um, a lot of sadness. One, I identified with those guys, you know, those fatherless guys who are going into this church and giving a decade of their lives to this. And, and they talked about how like one, one of the wives said that her husband looked like a shell of a man. Like that's what somebody told my wife and I, when we left our church, that we, we looked like shells of who we were. And so I'm processing a lot of that pain as I'm dealing with this. But then also where I'm at now, I'm also starting to hurt because I'm, I'm thinking, where are, where are the voices of other people in this podcast that are not being recognized? Where are the voices of LGBTQ people that have been hurt? Where are the voices of racial minorities who have been hurt? Because when I was in that world, like in that church planting world, it was very, we were all about urban centers and being a multicultural missional church. Well, then if, if you're going to be an urban center and with a multicultural church, you're probably going to attract people from other races and cultures. So where were those wounds? They weren't, they weren't mentioned in the podcast. Mm-hmm. So it was like, now I'm reflecting back and I'm like, were we just a bunch of white guys and talking about multiculturalism mm-hmm. and hurting each other? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or are there voices of people that 
were wounded that Christianity today is ignoring. And, mm-hmm. and so I was feeling pain from coming face to face with my own wounds within that world, but also with wondering where are the silent wounds that aren't being mentioned in this podcast? Yeah, Jessica, what, w- what would you add to that in terms of like, you know, um, critiquing a podcast that about a church that we all agree is bad, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, you know. sort of, um, you know, moving on from Rick's point and incorporating it in my response. Um, I think that the podcast makes Mark a lot more palatable than he actually was. Mm. Um, I think it almost gives him a pass in a lot of ways. I try to call attention to some of that in my review where I excerpt certain things that he said online. Um, Even though it mentions certain things like the William Wallace II thread um, on Pussified Nation, right, um, on the Midrash forum back in the day, it doesn't actually include any of that language. And, you know, I'm not saying that you need to browbeat anybody with that, but to understand exactly what happened and what people and what you know going to rick's point you know what guys were getting excited about frankly you know i mean they're the a lot of the the last episodes talk about the men are not only traumatized and feeling it like in, in a bodily sense which i also saw when i was interviewing people um you know 2014 or so but also um just the shame there's reasons for that and i feel like there's a big disconnect between going from the beginning stage of that podcast to the middle part that gets kind of muddied to then the end. Again, that's where I say it's uneven, right? I Mm -hmm. I don't really, the the dots are not emotionally connected in a way that's intelligent. And that's why I think it's a real problem, you know? Um, So it's not about doing something different. It's again, getting that narrative straight because there are people hurting and yes, you, you know, you hear people crying, you hear some emotion in that last episode, for sure, especially the last episode, I would say not so much before that, but mm-hmm. that last episode. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of it's 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 kind of um, almost aggressive, like you understand where people are coming from. If you've had that experience, I understand it because I was there. But I don't know that people from outside can really get that unless they've had clear connections, emotionally speaking, um, and you need Mark's you need to understand the dynamic of, of that. Some of what the woman was saying, um, the, the, the woman who was called Lindsay in the last episode, right, about how the DNA of the, the, the church was really filtered through or saturated, you know, um, by, you know, Mark's rhetoric and his demeanor and his posture, his bullying, his aggressiveness, that war mentality, that was very, and, you know, again, it's mentioned, you know, but I, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not trying to sell books, honestly, but frankly, <laughs> I'm not getting the royalties. I'm not Mark Driscoll yeah. re- result source, by the way. Um, <laughs> but it's not like I'm making big bucks off of this book. Um, but I will say that the one thing that my book does is shows that process of how, you know, you can have this domineering authoritarian figure yeah. who then is so has taken over so much control that it's it, it filters down through all aspects of the ministry, despite the good intentions of the people who may be underneath him, right? And Lindsay's testimony in that last episode at least harks to that. But again, it's really hard to get a sense of that until she mentions it, and you don't really hear it embodied or, or emoted throughout the entire podcast. And then it's just this thing. So if you're inside it, you, and I, you know, again, with all the research I did and, and, and living this with people, I got it, but you know, I don't, I, it could have been so much more powerful, you know? And the other thing I would say is with, with what Rick was saying about the whiteness factor and people who are hurt, you know, I've seen people saying, well, you know, Mars Hill was predominantly white, you know, the young um, restless and reform movement, predominantly white, I mean, there's a point to that, yes, but that doesn't mean that there aren't people sitting in the so-called pews who aren't, right? That doesn't mean that there aren't people who are gay who are being told that if they have sex, they're, they're a problem, you know? Um, and and mm-hmm. basically, Mark's line was always, well, I'm not Jerry Falwell Sr. I'm not saying it's the worst sin to be gay. But, you know, it's like along the same. He's like, I'm equal opportunity when it comes to sin. Like, it's the same as being a murderer. 
you know, I, <laughs> that's, that's damaging. Okay. That's not really um, equal opportunity. You know, I, I might use that language equal opportunity in my book, right? It's, he, he wants to make it seem like he's being equal opportunity when it comes to the sin. But if you're gay in that environment, you feel horrible about yourself. You know, you're beating yourself up all the time. Yeah. It's not healthy. And so, mm. you know, I try to bring that out in my book, even though, you know, it's, there aren't a lot of examples. The other thing I would say is Islamophobia and an anti-Islamic, anti-Muslim rhetoric mm. and, and disposition was very, very key to that war dynamic. So it wasn't just metaphor. It was also, you know, embodied through these kind of allusions to um, Muslims being like masculine and invading, you know, the, the city centers and Christians having to take them back. You know, I mean, there was that language. There were literally soldiers from the Gulf War um, who were who were in the, the, the sanctuary at times giving testimony and talking about blowing up, you know, mosques. And, and so there's... There's that. And again, this material is documented in my book and it's very well cited. Mm -hmm. I, I was very careful about using stuff. And, and you know, so, um, you know, so that's very that's all. None of that is in none of that is in the podcast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you don't get the real sense of fear. It's one thing to say, oh, well, this was you know scary or there was a fear factor. But you can't really get a sense of that unless you do a very you're very careful about the way that you you show that. And unfortunately, in the podcast, it comes across as the spooky music, you know, like I started getting real. I don't know if anybody else knows this, but again, because I listened to the two episodes back to back yesterday, I was very aware of when like something was about to happen and there was this ominous music in the background, you know, and I was just like, oh my gosh, is this so yeah. hammock heavy handed, right? So anyway, there's different ways of approaching that, but I wasn't appreciative of the way it was done. Yeah. It's it's interesting how, like what Jessica said, how Mark would say, well, I'm not Jerry Falwell Jr., and if you look at the way the podcast is set up, you've got a, a lot of white mainline conservative evangelical pastors who are saying, well, I'm not like Mark Driscoll. <laughs> and yet, if you examine Mark Driscoll's theology and Jerry Falwell Jr.'s theology, they're basically the same. Yeah. And when you examine a lot of these conservative men's theology and Mark Driscoll's theology, it's basically the same. There's still a power dynamic theology, this hierarchical theology where the realm of the divine is a hierarchy of beings and the realm of the humans are, is a hierarchy of beings that, that mirror the divine power dynamics. And, and, and so there's this theology of exercising, God exercises his power and authority over us. And so we, we mirror that by exercising our power and authority over others. And so like what I'm trying to get us to think is what are the theological implications of this? Like they told us, we, this is the gospel. We are living out the gospel. That was the language they chose. And, and yet Mars, the, the podcast, the rise and fall of Mars Hill is trying to make it out to be like a celebrity problem. Mm. And, and I think, I think it's, yeah. there's some celebrity factors, but I really think it's um, it comes ultimately down to a theology issue. Yeah. So if I yeah. maybe do encapsulate that to summarize that, like, the, the critique here is that in, in not going deep enough, in sort of keeping it at this shallow level of like, wow, Mark sure was a flamboyant bad person, right? You know, and I'm being, I'm caricaturizing it. But in keeping it at that level, we basically, it allows us to sort of exercise our angst about Mars Hill or about Mark Driscoll without actually examining the systems and the, theolo the theology that brought about Mark Driscoll. Absolutely. That and empowered I think, Mars Hill. Yeah. And I think white supremacist, patriarchal, right? And, and Christian supremacist, right? All of those factors come into that theological purview. And again, it also is embedded through cultural and social dynamics as well, right? It all feeds into these other, I, I've used the language of overlapping domains. You know, I don't think you can, I mean, this is me coming from, this is an anthropologist, but separating out the political and the theological here to me is, that's a false narrative, right? Mm. So, um, you know, so yes, I, I think, so when I hear things like, well, there weren't, weren't many, they were mostly white people. Like that's, that's a cop out, you know, that's what Rick is, I think, getting at too. Right. And, and thinking about the patriarchal structures that also allowed that masculinist, you know, kind of 
posture and ideology to feed into so many of the, the community dynamics is it's unmistakable, right? So that doesn't mean you can't feel for the guys who are also harmed by that. I mean, that's what I partly show in my book as well is this, this hurts men too. It, you know, it, it, it hurts yeah. them differently, but certainly men are, are hurt by this dynamic as well, especially when you have an authoritarian bully like Driscoll running the show. Yeah. Yeah. There was a moment in the last episode where they, they, I don't, I'm not going to, I can't quote it off the top of my head, but he, he did something like, you know, what is the difference between a healthy uh, male headship? Like, complementarians believe and the power dynamics you know and i was thinking well, what's the difference like you're still pitting a gender hierarchy of men over women simply because of of their gender mm-hmm. yeah and underneath that rick and around that is something one of the reasons why we wanted to bring jessica and rick together for this conversation is uh because there's a theological crisis i think in mars hill and mark driscoll that christianity today is unwilling to have um, Christianity today is, is, is built upon many of these. So for instance, Rick, we have to say that, well, good complementarianism wouldn't lead to Mark Driscoll because so much of Christianity today is built in a platform and a brand that, that they can't, uh, they can't alienate complementarians. They won't They'll lose money. They'll lose subscribers and then they'll die. We can't name white supremacy as an issue uh, because so many of people who have funded and started and continue this to work for today think that that's Marxist or woke and, and you'll lose money and you'll lose the brand. And so I kind of, as I listen to this podcast, I keep thinking of people like outsiders who were inside like Jessica and insiders who are now out like Rick you are, we're listening. And I would say Ben and I are, are, are similar, more similar where Rick is, where we're still, we follow Jesus. We believe in Jesus, but I don't think we identify with um, what Christianity today is trying to do in this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're listening with different ears. We, we actually can say something like, well, of course, patriarchal white supremacy is running this thing. And we're not alienating. We're not cutting off the branch we're standing on. Right. And it seemed like there were, you know, I, I'm trying to be charitable here. Because I don't think Mike Cosper's a bad guy, and I think he's actually he's actually doing the best work he can do inside the frame he's operating in. Is kind of where I was with some of these frustrations. I don't know your thoughts or response to that, Rick. Do you- yeah, like like I I kind of see a lot of the in opening this up to the deconstruction conversation today. I yeah. see a lot of these conversations because that was a big you know focus of the podcast too. I feel like a lot of these conversations are like imagine like a Tower of Babel, and there's a room in there. And evangelicals are in that room discussing who's in the room and who's outside of the room. And then there are those like Jessica or those like, you know, us who have left the tower of those (laughs) hierarchical power dynamics. And we're looking back and we're saying, look, there's a tower here. We were once part of the tower. This is how it functions. And, you know, we can actually live in healthy relationship out here with one another, (laughs) despite our differences. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, And they're not recognizing the tower. And I think that Jessica uh, had a, a part of her article that was really powerful where she talks about the lack of self-awareness that this uh, podcast promotes. And I've seen so many people who want to call out the abuses of Mark Driscoll, but they just, they have a, a very, a, a lack of self-awareness about how the podcast is, um, you know, just promoting a conversation in the room about those outside and about um, they're, they're not willing to examine the theology. Yeah, that was the benefit of your article, Jessica, in particular, which we'll link in the show notes, was naming so many of the same dynamics and uh, assumptions and even mechanizations and, um, yeah, maybe force or power that that built Mars Hill and perpetuated Mark Driscoll's brand is kind of at work in the podcast itself, mm-hmm. that, that we're trading on the same capital to talk about the danger of the capital. Yeah. And there's this move all through the podcast. By the way, we're going to get two questions. If you're listening, you have questions, uh, we can, you can either type them in the chat or, or we can, you can raise your hand and we'll, um, we'll do this for our Gravity Commons live people who are watching. But we'll wrap up this p- part of the podcast and then we'll go to that next. But there are so many moments where they, they want to blame things that are outside the church for Mark. So they blame his charisma. They blame his temperament. Uh, they blame technology and the internet. They blame social media, right? C- celebrity culture. And all of these things are 
known boogeymen outside the church who are trying to corrupt the church, right? Rather than rather than evaluating like you do in your article, uh, Rick, um, may, maybe if we preach like maybe if we preach a God who's violent, maybe it will justify our violence. Maybe if we preach a God who's like misogynistic, like we'll we'll pattern and project and and imitate that misogyny. Uh, th- that kind of work can't be done, I think, inside the edifice or the frame from which it emanates. Uh, and this is why I thought, Rick, your article and Jessica, your article were so helpful for us because it helps us see through other people's eyes, get outside of this room in the Tower of Babel and evaluate the situation with more clarity. Yeah. So uh, thank you both. Maybe last words from Jessica and Rick from this this part of the podcast. Jessica, do you have uh, something you want to close us with? Yeah, two things real quick. Um, one thing, your comment about complementarianism, I definitely got the sense when Mike Cosper was interviewing me that he wanted me to say something about positive, about complementarianism, <laughs> but just by the question he asked, right? Have In your research, have you ever seen mm. a positive outcome or healthy, right, embodiment? He didn't use that language, but a healthy kind of, right, um, you know, you know, uh, enactment of, of complementarianism. And I sat there and there was a long pause because I knew he wanted me to say yes. And I wanted to be respectful, but I just sat there and I was like, um, no, <laughs> then I laughed because I didn't know what, to, you know, so that was definitely a there. So thank you for saying that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I want to thank you for is it drives me a little bit nutty when people want to separate Christianity and, and the Christian church writ large from, from culture. That's not yeah. it, okay? No. That, like, and, and that gets sort of muddled too because, you know, even Cospel used that language of culture making, we're culture making. Well, that Christian culture also affects my life, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not separate from me, right? Like there's that us and them kind of mentality and that comes out in my review too, I think it's, it's kind of really easy to fall into. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say that Christians are making culture, mainstream culture, just as much as you know everybody else is right there's there's not like yeah. some separate playing field or separate you know sphere um yeah. and yeah. so if you're against christian patriarchy within the church then you know think about it outside the church because that's actually affecting other lives right that kind of thing so thank you for that mm-hmm. yep yeah and, and kind of picking back on on what she said i think that ultimately for me what this is an exercise in is an exercise in self-awareness with the goal of learning to love myself well in a way that's going to overflow in loving my neighbor well. And, and so, you know, I'm, you know, some people may see it as you're attacking a podcast or you're attacking a doctrine, you know, really I'm, I'm coming to become aware of the lenses through which I'm seeing my world, um, the, the water I'm swimming in and, and how that has shaped through the centuries. And, and then, and, and I can, and, there, and when I do that, I can be moved with compassion for myself and, and empathy for myself. And, and, and mm. when I can get to that point, I can begin to see my neighbor in myself. Exactly. And then I can love them with the same compassion and empathy that I'm learning to work through with myself. Mm. That's great. That's such a good word to wrap up this podcast with. Um, we will link to Rick's article in the show notes, including uh, Rick, you wanted to share a little bit about your band and a book <laughs> or an album and a book you're writing. Yeah. Let's let you do that. Yeah. So I've got a um, album that is uh, I'm coming out with it's recording right now. David Rubit is Rubelit is producing it. And it's um, the, the first song. It's just a three song EP. The first one is confronting the church for the wounds that it's caused me. And it's called uh, dear church. And the second one is inspired by Beth Allison Barr's book, um, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, and it's called Go Be Free. And then the third song is is an exploration of relating to the Christian faith like the Christian mystics have, and it's called An in, in Infinite Mystery. And so you put the three songs together. It's go, Dear Church, Go Be Free, An Infinite Mystery. And that's kind mm-hmm. of my message for the, been my message for the church. And then the children's book, I wanted to have it out, but I'm producing it for myself and the printer kind of messed it up. So we're, we're <laughs> reworking on some of that, but it's, it's about the lenses that we see our world through. So Awesome. Awesome, Rick. And Jessica, um, we'll put a link to your Religion Dispatches article. The title is Sharing Many of the Same Flaws as its Subject. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast puts blame anywhere but where it belongs. Uh, 
We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Obviously, the book, again, that she wrote about her uh, years being embedded in Mars Hill is called Biblical Porn, Gender, Sexuality, and Evangelical Empire. Thank you both for being with us today. Woo. That was something. <laughs> Indeed. It great was, conversation. It was great. I, I'm struck by the fact that we could have talked for hours mm-hmm. and not exhausted all of the avenues to explore with the cultural phenomenon that is Mars Hill. Yeah, I think this far, you know, we recorded this interview back when um, I think the I think the podcast was just coming to an end. I can't remember the timing exactly, uh, but it's mm-hmm. interesting to kind of release it now when most people that I know of aren't really talking about it that much anymore. Um, but I think it, you know, m- maybe in the uh, in hindsight, um, after a few months of uh, letting things settle, um, it might be a good time to actually revisit some of those dynamics and, and for people to, I'd love to hear listeners reflections. Uh, if you've listened to the podcast and you've had some time to t- kind of digest it um, and you listen to that conversation with Jessica and Rick, uh, you know, I wonder what comes up for you. Um, because, I, you know, there, a lot of people even on our team um, really appreciated the podcast. And there's a lot of good things about, I think, the way that they went about things. But I think the, the questions that we wanted to have Jessica and Rick help us answer are really important for our cultural moment, kind of reckoning with evangelicalism and not just sort of the overt beliefs of evangelicalism, but also the the undergirding frames that support the thing. Yeah. That's what's so interesting about it to me is that Mars Hill is not about Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll is not about Mark Driscoll. And even CT's how, how Christianity Today decides to package what they include, what they exclude, what they focus on, how they frame it, how they talk about it, all of that is a part of a larger cultural thing, I think, that we are particularly fascinated in because we've experienced it, right? And this is this is where, um, you know, Jessica and Rick just did such a great job of bringing two of those lenses, two of those perspectives to bear on it. So, Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I wish we could produce a podcast that would sound as beautiful as The Rise mm-hmm. and Fall of Mars Hill. Be, they really do nice. an excellent job producing. They do. You know? Bells, whistles. Whistles, the whole thing. Smells. I even smell things when I listen to that. Smells, bells, whistles. It's like yeah. a combination right. of high liturgy and uh, <laughs> clown music. I don't know. Smells, bells, whistles. Choo-choos. Uh, all right. We, we good? We done? I think so. Is that it? Is that all we got? All right. Well, there's just one thing left to do, Ben. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, I need to let you know this, sometimes I uh, tuck my knees into my chest and lean forward. Do you? Yeah, it's just how I roll. (laughs) All right. All right. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Joining our Gravity community is free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternkey edits and mixes the podcast, and you can check out his work at aaronsternkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start record button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.